these linear features, so hedgerows and tree lines are so important because we don't have that much woodland left in the country and getting to those woodlands is nishy as a result of the agricultural landscape. So keeping our hedgerows, keeping our tree lines, all these natural features that provide dry, safe spaces are important uh, to be retained. Hello, I'm Cahill Summers. And I'm Deirdre Lynn. You're Chagas Sustainability Advisors, and you're welcome to the Chagas Environment Edge podcast number 65, bringing you the latest information, science and opinion to improve farm sustainability. With Halloween upon us, we investigate the interesting life of bats and why they are so important to Irish farmers. Dr. Tina Ogney, working with Bat Conservation Ireland and an ecologist that specialises in bat survey work, joins us to dispel the myths surrounding bats. Tina, you're very welcome to the show. Cahill and I, I suppose, are from um, two very historic buildings um, and we've had close encounters with bats over the over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about bats, about, you know, their hibernations, roosting, life cycle, etc.? Well, it's nice to be to encounter a bat. You must have been out in the evening time because they are nocturnal mammals. So uh, bats are a separate mammal group. They are the only true flying mammal in the world. Um, there are over 1,400 species known uh, in regards to bats across the planet at this stage. And it's increasing uh, the more we actually explore, especially tropical areas. Um, there are two major groups of bats, and they're the ones that... More often not people see depicted in the movies, the big giant bats. And these are the fruit or the pollen bats. And then we have a completely separate group that are the insect eating bats. So it's the micro bats are the small insect eating bats. And the mega bats are those large bats that tend to be found in tropical areas or uh, rainforest areas. So in Ireland and indeed all across Europe, we only have insect eating bats. So I have often received injured bats or grounded bats with a ham sandwich or a head of lettuce. They're not going to touch that. They are just purely insect eating bats in Ireland. We have nine species of bat in Ireland, nine resident bat species. And when we say resident, we mean breeding populations. But with climate change, we are going to encounter more vagrants lost of course as a result of storms or um coming over here on ferries or so forth so we have two additional bat species that have been recorded over the last couple of decades but there's nine resident resident bat species um and are pretty much all found across the islands we when we talk about bat populations and their distribution we tend to talk about the island because they're not particularly bothered with the border between northern ireland and the republic so they literally fly back and forth without their passports and um, we have uh, one species of bat called the Lesser Hershoe bat. This is kind of confined to the west of Ireland. So the six seaboard counties of Mayo, Galway, uh, Clare, Limerick, Kerry and Cork is where that particular species are found. And then the other eight species of bat tend to be distributed across the island. And some of them are very much only found in areas where really good habitat, such as really good deciduous woodlands, such as the whiskered bat, uh, the brown long-eared bat, while bats such as the common pipistrelle and soprano pipistrelle and lysers, they're pretty much found all across the island. And if people see bats, it tends to be one of those three very common species that they will encounter. So we had fourteen. We have 1,400 species, say, all around the world, and we have nine. Would we yes. have ever had more, Tina, uh, in the past? 
No, because the thing is, like, um, we actually have had an increasing number of bats over the last couple of decades. So, like, in back in the 1980s, if you were looking at um, uh, wildlife books, you would see seven bat species actually listed for Ireland. Uh, since then, the common pipistrelle turned out to be two genetically different species. So now we have the common pipistrelle and the soprano pipistrelle. So that increased it to eight. And then the Nautusius pipistrelle, which is a migratory species in the rest of Europe, turned up in Northern Ireland in 1994, liked County Antrim and Loch Ness, and has stayed since and is now actually spread across the island. So as a consequence, we now have nine resident bat species on the island. So while um, nine species is not considered a lot, it's literally like with so many um, wildlife populations in Ireland in comparison to, to Great Britain and indeed in comparison to the rest of Europe, we always have a positive because of the Ice Age and uh, the land bridges uh, melting away before a lot of the species came to Ireland. So it's literally just a reflection of that change in our landscape 10,000 years ago. So we started off with seven bat species when we started documented. Now we have nine plus two vagrant uh, species. Why don't why, Tina? Why don't we have any of those big bats? If you think about all the apple trees and berries and fruits that we have around that we'd have. Well, they're more yeah, uh, they're more associated with tropical areas. To be honest, so it's not just the fact we have a few fruit uh, trees that are only fruiting really in the in the in the autumn months. These are bat species that rely on fruit all year round. So like, and they don't go into hibernation. Like the reason why we have insect eating bats and you probably consider, okay, there's no insects during the, the winter months. That's true. But that's why bats go into hibernation because there isn't anything for them to feed on. So their evolutionary cycle means that their life cycle is they're active during the warm evenings where there's plenty of insects for the feed. But once the weather goes below six, eight degrees, the insect population goes down and bats can go into a torpor. But if it's an elongated series of nights of constantly cold weather, then the bats will go into true hibernation and stay in hibernation for a few weeks. But at the same time, very conscious of the weather patterns, they can emerge during the during the winter if it's a mild winter. So a few years back, we had a very mild Christmas day and I had phone calls, people seeing bats during the day flying uh, while they're waiting for their turkey. But it's literally, bats are very reflective of the weather and that's why situations like climate change is quite detrimental for most of our wildlife because it is breaking that usual seasonal cycle of feeding, birthing, feeding again, and then going into hibernation when it's supposed to be cold weather. And if they wake up early in, say, on Christmas Day, like you said, and then we get a harsh January and February with little insect movement, are they in trouble then? They are. Um, now, some of the the bats like uh, that are probably a little more seasoned in the sense that they have um, gone through a few years of being able to actually adapt to the weather. They probably know the best place to go for hibernation in really cold weather or the best places to, to go into torpor when it's kind of quite changeable weather. But it's more the juveniles just don't have that experience and they can get caught out. So it's like Bats are quite long-lived mammals, and they, which is really unusual for such a small mammal. Like our pipistrelles are only the size of my tongue, so people kind of don't realise bats are actually quite small mammals. It's just their wingspans are quite big. So when people see them flying at night time, kind of wild imagination, think these are giant creatures flying at the night. They're actually very small mammals. But the juveniles, um, the whole thing about 
September, October, November. This is a chance for them to put on weight and get all their insects uh, feed lots, put on fat reserves and get ready for the winter. But if it's very changeable winter, every time they wake up, they're going to be using up those valuable fat reserves. So it really depends on how good the feeding was before the winter torpor. Uh, if the feeding's not great, they're not going to survive the winter and be able to actually get back into the spring to be able to feed again. So that sort of very changeable weather is quite detrimental, and especially if it's a juvenile bat only learning how to actually get through the winter for the first year. They eat a very high calorie diet, don't they? And is it down to also the fact that they lose body heat very quickly? Um, they, it's more to do with the fact that they're flying. Okay. So, and also because of the fact bats echolocate. So bats are not flying. So to get rid of those uh, myths about bats, and they don't fly into your hair, they are amazing. <laughs> no such thing as a blind bat. They have got really good eyesight. It's just not good enough for the really dark hours of the night. So instead they use echolocation. So echolocation is literally producing these ultrasonic noises and these really high-pitched noises. So we hear it about 20 kilohertz, but bats start to echolocate about 22 kilohertz plus, with a lesser hertz you back going all the way up to 113 kilohertz. That's really energy expensive sort of sonar. And that coupled with flying, which is also really energy expensive. So overall, bats are in a very, very fine balance of how much they need to consume. So that's why they feed on insects and they will feed on about three, three and a half thousand insects each night in order to be able to fly and echolocate. One bat. Together. One bat. So there's no need for pesticides. Have a few bats. Encourage bats to your farm and they'll keep down the insect population. Would they normal flies or midges or what do they, is, do they, are they fussy and what to eat? It's more to do. It's not that kind of the chaps kind of look at the menu and see, okay, I'm going to have a few midge tonight. It's more the size of the insect. So each bat have um, a particular morphological shape to their body, which includes the shape to their wings and the length of their wings. And this is coupled with how they produce their echolocation calls. So each of the nine bat species we have in Ireland have their own their own characteristic echolocation call. And these echolocation calls are, are have evolved to capture a certain size of insect. So they're looking for particular sizes of insects in particular habitats. So there's an absolute wonderful uh, research going on in UCD at the moment. Um, uh, a student there is working on what we call bat ecosystem services. So she's been looking at the diet of um, bats for the last three years. Her name is Gwen. And she's looking particularly at the pipistrels and brown long-eared bats. And she's been uh, extracting the DNA from the droppings and identifying which insects the bats are eating. And she's already documented over 200 different species that the bats are feeding on. So they will go ending from the, all the different types of moths to the midge. So it varies from a four millimeter size insect all the way up to a two centimeter long insect. So it really depends on the insect and also what time of the summer they're feeding on because it's going to be different insects emerging at different times of the year. It's great to know that they have a role in pest control that can help farmers then. And we oh, can, we, and hopefully we'll have um, a reduction in pesticide usage as, as a result. Um, well, nature is brilliant there. It has its own balance. It just we interrupt those balances and like really nature can have that balance there for us if we, if we let it be. So, Tina, you're also involved in the Irish Bat Monitoring Programme. Can you tell us a little bit about, about your role here? 
Yes, so the Irish Bat Monitoring Programme is the main uh, job or role that Bat Conservation Ireland has. We're we're primarily in education, but we also have a contract with both MPWS in the South and NIA in Northern Ireland, where we actually undertake the the national monitoring programmes for bats in order for both governments to be able to report on the state of their on the bat populations. So the Irish Bat Monitoring Programme is literally the umbrella name for five surveys that we have. So the five surveys, we have the Lesser Hershey Bat Roost Monitoring, the Brown Long-Eared Bat Roost Monitoring, the All-Ireland Dobettons Bat Waterway Survey, the Car-Based Transit, and we're piloting a Woodland Survey at the moment. And the reason why we need five is because bats are, are a difficult species to actually monitor because each of our bat species have very peculiar ecology. And as a consequence, there's no one survey that allows us to monitor all the same species at the same time. So we have had to design different types of surveys to be able to get the data that we need for reporting. So that's the Irish Bat Monitoring Programme. And all of these surveys are undertaken at different times of the year for depending on which species. So the, the All-Ireland Dawbettons Bat Waterway Survey, this is a lovely survey. Anybody can do this. This is what we call our beginner detector survey this is where we train people how to use a bat detector for the first time and to learn how to monitor one species of bat on their river or the canal and this this is undertaken in the month of uh, August so we have over I think so far we have 227 teams have sent back their results for this year and they would have surveyed 227 different waterways across the island and uh, so we're hoping we have probably about another dozen to be returned, but we have a phenomenal uh, volunteer base and they literally go and walk their uh, selected one kilometre transit along a river or a canal in the month of August, checking to see uh, how many dog bettings bats are actually flying along their stretch of river. So that's that survey. Uh, we have the Brown on Eared Roost Monitoring Scheme, which is we have 45 or so roosts around the Republic of Ireland and we have people actually count those three times over the summer and they're literally counting when the bats emerge from the building and they're literally just counting how many bats actually come out. And we just kind of see has that changed from year to year. And generally it doesn't because bats, they only give birth to a single baby and um, and they only reproduce maybe once a year or once every two years. So they're very slow reproducing mammal. And because juveniles have such a precarious first couple of years, the population tends to stay relatively the same from year to year, um, because because they're quite they're they're quite uh, long lived, but also very slow reproducing mammals. So, um, that's the the roost monitoring counts. But yeah, and we've got the car based. The car based one is was first established in two thousand and three, and it was designed purposely for Ireland. Um, it was literally because in two thousand and three we didn't have that many bat people. So we wanted a scheme that would cover the country as quickly as possible and document as much information. So this is literally we have teams of people driving um, in a 30 kilometre square area on a on a pre-mapped route and have a specialised detector stuck to their to the, the passenger side of their window. And that's continuously recording as they're uh, driving 1.6 kilometre transits. And from that, we can actually identify what bats they're, they're encountering as they're driving 24 kilometres an hour. So we do see uh, orange sirens and somebody driving at nighttime with a big sign saying wildlife survey. That's one of our car-based uh, volunteers. That's fantastic. 
our bats are protected, all bats in Ireland. Um, and I think our bat populations are reasonably okay if I'm writing it. But just one actually question that you brought up um, or a point you brought up about the juvenile bats and they, they obviously don't reproduce very often. Um, do, do they hang upside down, the small, the baby bats? Or how do they live? Or where, how does the mother mind them? I just thinking of... I, I because I found one dead on the floor of our shed there a few years ago. I was just wondering how do you protect those because they're mammals, so they're not laid an egg. And do they sit in a corner of a shed or how do they? Mind yeah, them? yeah. Um, well, going back to first, just to, you talked about bats. All bats being protected in Ireland. That's true. They're all bat protected. And um, different bat species. Some of them are doing very well. Some of them are literally just on what we call stable population just sitting there in the population trend line so depending on species bats that are um doing well are the likes of our common bat species but some of our more specialist bat species such as the whiskered bat that's confined to really good woodlands we have a paucity of woodlands in this country as a consequence the, the population trend for that is very much unknown because we don't have that much information on it so just to answer that part in relation to bats themselves yes they are mammals so they give birth to live young um, so bats tend to, they're very transient mammals. So they have a summer roost, a winter roost, and different spring and autumn roosts and there's mating roosts. But in the summertime, and this is when people realize they might have bats roosting in their farm sheds or even roosting in their attic spaces. So just to alleviate people's worries, these guys, they are very good at finding insects. As a consequence, they're very good at finding gaps in their slates or gaps in our face and software board. So they don't chew their way into people's attics. There is gaps there and they can find a way and they crawl in. They'll either stay between the slate and the felt, just nice and warm space in there. Um, or they'll actually go into the attic space and just hang up along the ridge beam or in a corner uh, down by the fascia. They tend to group together, the females, especially if it's a cold enough uh, summer's day, they'll group together for warmth. They give birth. When the mammies are there with the young, the babies will cling on to them. Uh, when the mammies are not there, they're out feeding at nighttime. The young just kind of group together and cling on. They have very, very fine um, nails, uh, in a sense, claws on their, 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 their tongue and their finger bones. And these can easily just cling on to the felt. So they're, they're literally just clinging there. And because of the way they have evolved, they, they're clinging uh apparatus of their of their claws is a natural relaxed position for their muscles it's literally to actually unattach themselves requires a uh, muscular effort so it's kind of like the opposite to the way we to the way we behave so as a consequence if if unfortunately if a bat dies and you see it just hanging inside a cave and it's it's unfortunately passed away because the natural position for it means the cling it doesn't actually fall uh, fall away so it's so there's no effort for the bats to actually cling so they're they're very happy the young bats just cling together and when they're born they tend to be born in uh, mid-may to early june depending on the weather but they will actually grow very quickly because the mammy feeds them exclusively on her own milk she doesn't bring back any insects to the, to the, the young bat she's only feeding them insects and as a consequence they can grow to adult size between six to eight weeks so they're they're not small for that long, um, and often like there's some wonderful video clips of um, of uh, infrared footage of juvenile bats in the attic, 
when they're about three, four weeks old and they're they're quite big at stage, loads of fur and they're practicing their their uh, push-ups, getting their wing muscles ready to be able to fly. So you can actually literally see them <laughs> doing their push-ups exercises. Taking their protein uh, in, Yeah, <laughs> in, in, the, in the attic space. So they do just kind of cling together and stay together. Um, so there's, there's no problem when the, the mommy's away. Like, like when we're doing the monitoring, especially the brown on eared monitoring, uh, the first count is done in June and we count for an hour. At By the end of the hour, the female bats are already returning because they come back to actually feed the young and then they'll go back out for another hour and feed. And they'll do this continuously throughout the night until the bats get a little bit bigger and they can go in more extended periods of feeding um, so they, they can uh, get back to the young at later stages. Tina, if you inadvertently went near or touched um, the baby bats, would the mother reject them or would all be well? I, to be honest, like I can't 100% say the answer to that. But because the bats are, the young bats, they can explore a wee bit. So they're always mooching around the place. And because like, yes, they inadvertently can drop. And like we always say in that case, like we do have to encourage people to, to handle bats with their hands because they're still a wild mammal. We ask people to use gloves or a tea cloth. But when a bat's on the ground, it needs our help. We call that a grounded bat. Um, so picking it up with a glove or a tea cloth and putting it back into a position is going to give it a, a much better chance of survival than kind of being afraid of actually passing on our scent, to be honest. Um, I think they're a little more resilient than young fledgling birds, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah. So I won't worry about that. It's more getting the bat out of danger than anything else. And even sometimes juvenile bats, when they do start to fly in August, they're not brilliant. You can quickly see a young juvenile bat in comparison to an adult that's a, that has a bit of experience of flying. And we often get calls in the month of August of bats being found on the ground, especially if it's a windy night, they get slapped to the ground. And unfortunately, they're not brilliant at jumping into flight. And this is why bats roost quite high up. And if you ever watch bats coming out of the roost, they literally fall into flight. They fall a couple of feet and then they take off. So that's why if a bat's on the ground, it always needs our extra help of hand to be put up, back up into a height so we can get going again. Just going back to your survey, uh, Tina, um, you mentioned the Dabenton bats, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I saw one of your videos um, and I'm just thinking from the point of view from a volunteer, uh, you mentioned the volunteers across the country doing a lot of gro- good work, but not to be afraid of helping to volunteer. You did a video about watching the Dabentons going over a river. I think you kind of had a light shining across the river. You had a bat monitor, bat detector, and you could see them and you could hear by the detector when the bats were coming and you could see them flashing over the river. I thought it was really cool. Mm. To catch insects on the river. Yeah, so that's the that's the, the Dawbetons bat. It's a great beginner bat for people because it has a very particular flight pattern, and that is the fact that it skims across the water. It flies thirty centimeters above the water, up and down, on a beaten track. So if you kind of consider like the way the swallows fly above our lake shore uh, during the daytime, especially if it's going about to rain, the swallows fly very close to the water, and it's continuously skimming looks taking insects off the surface. That's what the Dobetons bat does. And uh, just to emphasize, yes, we use a bat detector and a torch. Now, the torch I was using for that particular video was an infrared torch. So the video was uh, an infrared uh, uh, light coupled with a, a camcorder that had night vision 
shot capability. So illuminated, but in the infrared zone, because bats are quite light sensitive, all nocturnal mammals, like most of the, the wildlife we have in this country are nocturnal. So they're very sensitive to all the street lighting, especially that really bright white light. And um, so when we're actually doing the survey, yes, we our surveys use a bat detector and they use a torchlight. But the torchlight they use, we try and encourage them to use red light because red light has less of an impact. But if they're using white light, they test their torches on the surface of the water to make sure it's not too bright. Because if it's too bright, they're not going to see any bats. So they have to get the right level lighted that makes the bat comfortable to actually continue foraging on the river. But in relation to the bat detector, yes, because bats are using these ultrasonic noises or producing these ultrasonic noises, it's outside our hearing range. So the only way we can actually really eavesdrop on the bat's uh, sound environment is to use a bat detector. So a bat detector is literally just a handheld device with an ultrasonic microphone in the front. The, the basic detector is a heterodyne bat detector. So it literally picks up the call, converts it into a noise that we can hear, which is about five to eight kilohertz. But the really cool thing about the bat detector is it retains the, the actual sound properties. So the noise you hear reflects the type of sound that the bats are producing. So if you're listening to a dog bat and all you can hear is and it's at a particular frequency. While if you're listening to a pipistrelle, you would hear and again, that's reflecting how the bats are flying. So pipistrelle is very poppy, but very erratic. And that's because when it's flying, it's very erratic. While the Dobetan's bat is just literally continuously going up and down. And as a consequence, but that's the bat detector allows us to hear them. But it also just kind of gives a focus to the actual volunteers. Kind of say, OK, bat is coming. Have your torch ready. You'll be able to see it skimming in front of you. And every time the bat skims by, they count the number of passes. Are the bat detectors expensive, Tina? Uh, when it comes to ultrasonic microphones, yes. So the most basic bat detector is what we call the Magenta 5 or Magenta 4, and they start off about 80 euro. Okay. And then after that, the world's your oyster. You could pay a phenomenal amount of money depending on, on detector. But we have, there's so many different types of detectors. So your basic one is a heterodyne. It's what's called a tunable. It's very basic. It picks up the sound, but only picks up the sound according to what you tune the dial to. So if you tune your dial to 50 kilohertz, you're only going to hear the bats that are explicating around the 50 kilohertz. There's other detectors now available, which we call full spectrum detectors. And it literally picks up the whole range of sound and often it gives you recorded files, which we can put up on software and see the actual shapes of the calls. And from the shapes of the calls, we can identify the bats. They're a different ball game altogether. Uh, our volunteers don't use them. For the Dobetan survey, we, we have the cheap and cheerful detectors. And how do you become a volunteer? Is there a site that you can get onto, Tina? Yeah, so Bat Conservation Ireland has a website, uh, www.batconservationireland.org. And there's a section on it for volunteers. And it goes through all the different programs. Um, and you can register for which ones you're interested in. And there's also a special section. If you're not a member of Bat Conservation Ireland, we have a, a, a separate insurance, uh, public liability insurance for volunteers to actually participate. So we get them to, and this encourage, this allows us because often a lot of our surveys are done on private land. And this is where it's, it's very important that our volunteers 
actually work with the local landowner to get permission before they go out onto farmers' lands to be actually be able to survey the rivers. And that's why we have this volunteer insurance as well to make sure that landowners are, are feel satisfied that there is that uh, awareness and uh, that to actually take care of the places that people our volunteers are serving. Tina, uh, most of our clients in Chagas uh, are farmers. And um, I suppose you have or a lot of our audience are, is involved in agriculture or farmers as well and landowners. What would you say to them? What can they do, I suppose, to improve the chances of bats coming onto the farms? Because you've mentioned that, um, you know, they bring a, a lot of benefits, a lot of eco benefits to, to, to our farms. How can we, I suppose, maintain and improve our populations? Well, the thing about that bats are a very good environmental indicator. So if you've got a healthy bat population, it tends to reflect as a healthy environment. But the, the other aspect is that because bats are very transient and because they require different roosting types of structures or trees throughout the year. So for the for the summer months, the females require buildings because we don't leave big mature trees in the landscape anymore. So as a consequence, they've adapted to our buildings. So it's kind of like they look for nice, secure, dry spaces. So if you do have bats roosting in, in your structures, the best thing to do is leave them be. And when it comes to them emerging at nighttime, it's making sure there's no lighting in the vicinity because they are nocturnal. And then the thing is about bats, they can travel for many kilometres from where they're roosting to the preferred uh, foraging areas. So bats prefer to forage along really good, tall, dense tree lines and hedgerows, places where it's going to provide insects to shelter. And that's where the bats are going to go. But because bats also use these linear features as a way to commute or to travel through the landscape, especially because sometimes they'll have to travel three, four or five kilometres from the roosting site to get to good woodlands or to get to good lakes or rivers, they need these linear features. So hedgerows and tree lines are so important because we don't have that much woodland left in the country and getting to those woodlands is literally as a result of the agricultural landscape. So keeping our hedgerows, keeping our tree lines, keeping mature trees within our hedgerows because as those trees mature, they'll have dead wood in them. I know people kind of see dead wood as a health and safety issue, but the thing is dead wood, tree holes, split limbs, that's a place where bats will roost as well. Even And same for other uh, wildlife as well. All these natural features that provide dry, safe spaces are important uh, to be retained. But the main thing is literally having this linear uh, connectivity in the landscape, but also the connectivity that allow that is good natural habitat. So there's no point in having hedgerows that are trimmed and cut to three feet high. They're not a shelter point for insects to gather or a safe point for bats to actually forage along. So unfortunately, it is it is as we would consider good, healthy looking hedgerows and trees are important. Um, then it's the, the, the it's keeping our waterways clean. Like um, bats feed primarily on insects that are associated with good water quality. So like while they feed on midge, they do prefer to feed on caddisfly, mayflies and stoneflies, which are really only present in, in good, clean water from Q value three plus. So again, that is a big thing for the agriculture community, ensuring that there is um, not too much runoff going on into our rivers. I know our weather doesn't actually uh, help those it's situations. It's a challenge, but yeah. It is a challenge, but at the same time, 
it is still our drinking water supply as well. So as well as kind of like the natural water for our wildlife and so forth in the landscape. So it's kind of like what when when our when our uh, bat population is healthy, it means our environment is healthy, which means it's a healthy environment for the human population too. Just thinking of bat boxes, that's another element. But again, it's putting bat boxes in the right place. I know there was an option of bat boxes a few years ago in one of the, the rep schemes. Um, but to be honest, timber boxes in Ireland disintegrate very quickly in the Irish landscape. So if people have timber bat boxes, I do kind of say put them up inside your big open hay barn. It's a nice dry shelter point. They last a lot longer than than warping in the Irish rain. But if you want to put a few bat boxes out in the open, look for a more expensive wood creek bat box. Instead of buying 10 timber boxes, a couple of wood creek bat boxes that will last 25 years in the Irish landscape is a much better option. And putting on nice clean trunks, at least four meters off the ground um, and in the right places where, in a sense, there's shelter points, not in direct windy areas or where there's lighting. Um, so Tina, look, I suppose to wrap it up, um, anyone out and about over Halloween, it's unlikely you're going to come across a big vampire bat anyway, because we've only small ones in Ireland, but you won't get one in your hair, which is great, but probably the reason uh, we're not going to see one either, because they're in hibernation, but uh, it was really, really good to have a chat with you, really enjoyed it, um, I certainly learned a lot, and thank you very much, and best luck with your work in the future. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Chagas Environment Edge podcast. Thanks to ecologist Dr. Tina Ogney of Bat Conservation Ireland for joining us on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Cahill Summers. And I'm Georgia Glenn. Join us next time for the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, signpost to farm sustainability. <laughs>